right, psychology nerds, welcome to the Psychology and Stuff podcast out of Phoenix Studios. I'm your host, Ryan Martin, and I'm here, as always, with my co-host, Dr. Georgina Wilson-Dengis. How are you, G? I am doing well, although it's a very drizzly, gloomy day, but you know, April showers bring May flowers, and it's almost May, so I'm looking (laughs) at it as a positive. (laughs) Nice. Way to reframe. Nice work. I, hey, I will, and it also did, so I've told you this before, but during the pandemic, I have felt inclined to always tell people the date of when we're recording because things <laughs> change so quickly. So that also nicely, because this episode won't come out till middle of May, but we're recording it on April 27th. Um, so I don't know, it's just the news changes so quickly that all of a sudden I'm worried that people are going to listen to it and be like, I can't believe they said that. That's not true. And it's like, well, it was <laughs> at the time, you know. <laughs> so That is um, true. And to further, like, just make the data stick, this past week was Earth Day, the 50th anniversary of Earth Day on um, this past Wednesday. So that was a, yes. it's a pretty big day for an environmental psychologist like me. So I have to say that I thoroughly enjoyed, I did a virtual nature walk, which is the first time I'd ever done anything like that. It was pretty cool. You were everywhere that day. Uh, I mean, not literally. Literally, I think you were just a few places. But, um, but I mean, you were you were all over the internet in various virtual spaces. I saw, which was very cool. Yeah. So nice work. I was pretty much a social media influencer for a day, but it yeah. was it was a big day. <laughs> yeah. Well, if it makes you feel better, you've always been an influencer to me, uh, both Aww. in social media Here and in the just, eye. You know, in person. Awesome. Well, before we get to our guests, we should provide a little context here because so back in March, we were going to do a special live episode for Women's History Month. Um, That event was scheduled, I think, the last week in March, maybe, I don't know, the second to last week in March, but it was canceled um, because of the COVID-19 health crisis. And now we are basically returning to that topic for our, um, our last episode of the season, uh, so this is our Women's History Month episode that we're finally getting to and uh, recording in <laughs> April and releasing two months after Women's History Month. <laughs> so um, so that's some Because some really, context. like, every month should be Women's History Month, so let's just go with yeah. that. Yep. No, I stand by that. I, I stand with that as well. <laughs> so very good. Um, all right. So let's let's introduce our guests and then talk a little bit about what we're doing. So first, we have from the UW Green Bay Psychology Department a social psychologist who just recently coordinated this super amazing I Am Psyched national tour at the Coffin Library here at UW Green Bay. It's Dr. Chris Smith. How's it going, Chris? It's going. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. Here's the dog on my lap. Uh, yeah. Chatting with some some folks. Yeah. <laughs> So, I mean, the dog in the lab's good. I don't know if the the rainy weather and the uh, the you know pandemic health crisis is great, but <laughs> <laughs> so, but I think things are great. <laughs> yes, but I I really these are the times that I wish that instead of doing a podcast that we were doing some sort of video thing so I could yeah. see the adorable dog on your lap because yeah, that would really bring me some have- joy. Yeah. But then I'd have to dress better too. <laughs> so. all right. Well, all I right. have the power for this. Sorry. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, 
Well, we also have with Dr. Smith is one of her amazing students who worked on that same exact project. Uh, she is a senior psychology major here at UW-Green Bay. It's Addison Hunter. How are you, Addison? I am doing okay. I'm also sitting with my dog, so that's great. <laughs> All these people with pets. I was I was in a meeting this morning with uh, well, with the English faculty here at UW Green Bay, and I'm pretty sure there was a cat in every screen, <laughs> of the, except for mine. They kept walking across people, like in front of people's faces, while they were while they were talking. It was really something to to see. Um, well, I'm surprised that you don't have Hissy, your uh, beetle, on your lap, then, Ryan. <laughs> You know, I did bring Hissy to a, a chairs meeting a few last month just because everybody else had pets and I was jealous. So I called I called Tobin over and said, Go get me Hissy. So uh yeah. Hissy the wow. best beetle, join me. Uh, <laughs> all right. Well, the fifth beetle? Sorry. <laughs> yes. That's the one. Um so here is our plan. We have each come prepared, I hope, to talk about uh, a woman psychologist that we appreciate. Um, and we're basically just going to go around the group and spend a couple of minutes uh, talking uh, about them. Does that sound like a good plan? And if, we, if we've got questions and stuff, we can kind of chime in with it. But um, I'm just kind of looking forward to learning about who people picked. Yeah. All right. Sounds great. So let's, uh, I think I, I pre, I gave a predetermined order, which is relatively random other than that I felt like I should go last because, uh, I was least important. So, um, <laughs> so we're going to start with, uh, Dr. Chris Smith. Uh, Chris, who are, I actually, I think yours is one that I'm not sure who you're talking about now that I think. Oh, uh, well, you this need to know. Yeah, Dr. Sandra Bem. Yeah, so oh, when, you, when you brought I do this know up, who that person is. Okay. Yeah, you've probably heard of the Bem Sex Row Inventory. Yes. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so when you asked, uh, you know, about, uh, you know, talk about women in psychology, you know, I do psychology with women, so there are a ton, but I thought I would do Sandra Bem uh, just because she's had such an influence on me. And so I thought I'd like to start my story about Sandra Bem with the highlight of her career when she is a professor at uh, Cornell University, went into her psychology faculty mailbox and found a fan letter from a young young upstart named, named Christine Smith. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I wrote her a fan letter in 1985. Nice. <laughs> were you, yeah. So were you a student? What, I, what were you well, doing in 85? <laughs> I was an undergrad, and I had okay. taken a class. I had taken a developmental psychology class where we talked about Ben's work and about the Ben's sexual inventory, and I just thought it was fantastic. And I was like, oh, this is exactly it. This is what Because I'd taken a social psychology class and really liked it, but none of my classes had really talked about gender until this class. And and we talked about her work. And so, yeah, so I wrote her a fan letter. <laughs> That's awesome. I would love that. Can you imagine yes. how great it would be to get a fan letter like that? Right. So, that would be yeah. amazing. <laughs> Yeah, and she sent me back a letter and gave sent me some articles. It was very gracious. So that's cool. Wow, that sounds so cool. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, so she really inspired me. Plus, she was born in Pittsburgh. I'm from nice. Pittsburgh. 
Everything's coming together. Right? <laughs> yeah. Although she had left Pittsburgh by the time I was, um, you know, by the time I went to college because uh, she had actually was teaching at Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh, which is the arch enemy of the University of Pittsburgh, oh. <laughs> where I attended. But anyway. <laughs> And I really, she really had a, a huge influence on me just because um, she was sort of like the ultimate for, for what I want to be, um, psychologist, although she's a developmental psychologist. Her husband, Daryl Bem, social psychologist. He's still alive. She is not. I'll get to that. Um, oh. Yes. And, um, and she also was really an activist. So she did her undergrad at Carnegie Mellon and, and her senior year met a, a, a handsome social psychology professor there named Daryl Bem, and they actually, um, you know, apparently it was, you stared at each other from across the room, and it was love at first sight, but she <laughs> refused to marry him unless he committed to having an absolutely egalitarian relationship, so Yay. from, yeah, from a very yeah. young age, she was always um, sort of challenging traditional norms when she went to school she refused to wear um, dresses she wore pants and so she always was kind of challenging this word challenging the the expectations around gender and she and Daryl Ben were actually featured in Ms. Magazine on their gender egalitarian marriage hmm. and while yeah and while they're in Pittsburgh they actually worked with the Pittsburgh National Organization for Women to sue the Pittsburgh press because they were because back at that time in the 70s, job ads were, were gender segregated. There were jobs um, men wanted and jobs women wanted. And so they worked with now and they sued um, the Pittsburgh Press. This went to the Supreme Court and won. So, yeah, so really amazing person. So, um, and so, and probably if, you know, her most well-known work, well, two areas. One is the done sexual inventory and the idea of interogeny and this idea that you could be both masculine and feminine, that they're separate constructs rather than, you know, an either or. And so, and that idea that probably what's most healthy is being high in masculinity and high in femininity using those, you know, contextually. So, you know, in with your children or with your family, you want to be high on some of those feminine traits. You know, so being nurturant and warm and gentle, but, you know, perhaps in a work environment, you want to be more agentic and assertive. And so people hadn't really thought of uh, masculinity and femininity in those terms. It was like an either or. And, of course, it was also attached to gender. And she said, no, no, women could be masculine, men could be feminine. And when I went to do my dissertation, my dissertation is actually on empathy towards rape victims and rape perpetrators. And there was one scale out there that was on either or. And actually kind of using that BEM framework, I created two separate scales um, based on that idea that you could be empathic towards victims and perpetrators. Hmm. So, um, so, it, so she really just had such a, a dramatic influence on my life and, and certainly my area of feminine, feminist psychology. Interestingly, she, after... Um, she actually got a faculty position at Carnegie Mellon, but then they were recruited out to Stanford, and then she didn't get tenure at Stanford. Interestingly, Daryl, of course, did. She did not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So even though this was after she had published this groundbreaking work, 
in um, around masculinity and femininity. And then, so then she was recruited, actually, both of them were recruited to Cornell, which is where she received that amazing letter from me. Uh, <laughs> 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 and and then she so her work also kind of evolved for so for example into more um looking at how society influences whether we're masculine or feminine and, and gender expectations through gender schema theory. So that was kind of her second big area that you know, we form schemas about you know, ideas about what it what how women and men are supposed to be like and these are learned. And so she actually she and Daryl had uh, two children, which they raised gen- in a gender egalitarian way with that gender schema. She actually has a book mm-hmm. on it called An Unconventional Family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, so from so throughout her life, and um, she has really been, um, you know, committed to this as an activist, as a psychologist. And interestingly, in 2009, well, she she had some cognitive, she was having some cognitive issues, and she went and saw a physician who told her that, you know, she has some cognitive decline that will eventually become Alzheimer's. And she decided that when she felt that she no longer could be functional, she would make the decision to end her life, which she did in 2014. Hmm. Um, When she felt, when her deficits were getting more significant, she um, had stored up pills and had a good pie party wow. for everyone and with Daryl. Yeah. So she always lived wow. her life on her own terms. Yeah. And I did not know that. Wow. Yeah. So just really such a and she was like four feet eleven inches tall. So <laughs> and she was but she was, you know, this amazing force who influenced my profession, influenced me professional professionally and personally, you know, as a role model and even how I structured my dissertation. So yeah. that's why I chose Sandra Bem. Oh, well, I'm really? glad you did. Yeah, <laughs> that's really amazing. Yeah. Hey, so approximately when did the Bem uh, inventory come out? 1974. 1974. Not even approximately. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Clinical consulting psychology. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> That is a really, I mean, it's been a while since I've thought of that scale, but, I mean, that is a really, really cutting edge. When you think about how modern it feels in a lot of ways, at least Mm -hmm. the description, I I guess I can't speak to the items, but it feels really, really um, relevant still today as far as just the ideology behind it. Yeah, well, people are still using the scale, actually. Yeah, yeah, I mean, and so looking at the actual items, they are – Fairly, um, I mean, or I guess that masculinity and femininity haven't changed all that much, so they're still pretty. It's still pretty contemporary, and people are still using it. Yeah. Right. Interesting. Yeah. So thirty. It has almost thirty-eight hundred citations. Wow. Yeah. wow. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I think my highest is like fifteen. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's not true. I'm actually. Um, Third, I have a fourth author on a paper that has about 300 citations. So. Nice. Oh, very, very good. We need to add another zero to that, at least. <laughs> very good. <laughs> well, thank you very much for that. That was fascinating. That's so. right there on Japan. <laughs> yeah. So, Addison, who uh, who do you have for us? 
Okay, so I chose Maria Root. I also have a little bit of a backstory. Mm-hmm. So I was in um, Dr. Smith's independent study for women of color in psychology, and we just got this little assignment where we had to pick um, a woman of color in psychology or just a woman in psychology and do a little presentation on them. And she gave us, like, a list of people and the things that they're interested in and what they do and so Maria Root is actually interested in multiracial identities, and that stood out to me more than anything because it's something that I go through in my daily life. So she focuses on multiracial identity in families, and she's a clinical psychologist. And she has, like, a number of books on, like, feminist therapy and mixed people in America and interracial marriage. So definitely things that have related to my personal life, which I thought was absolutely incredible because I guess I haven't seen a lot of people that are like me in the psychology field, and it was just so absolutely incredible to see somebody that has gone through this kind of thing and is able to speak for people. Um, so also, there she did this really cool thing, and it's called the Bill of Rights for People with Mixed Heritage, and it's just a document saying, like, what – people of mixed race are able to do and what we have the right to do and how we are able to feel in our race and that nobody else can, you know, tell others what to do and feel about their own race, which I thought was absolutely incredible that, like, you can identify how you want and nobody else should be able to judge you for how you identify in your race. So she's also currently a member of the Asian American Psychology Association, which I think is absolutely incredible because she's half Filipino. So I just wanted to pick her because I thought she's – I really find multiracial identities interesting, and I think she's a very good advocate for speaking out about multiracial identities. So she – I thought she was pretty incredible. You know what I think is really awesome is when you find someone who's doing uh, really high-quality science – but it's on something that they also are a very strong advocate for. And I heard that in Mm -hmm. both yours, Addie, but also in um, Chris's choice of a person. It's not only that they do outstanding research and science uh, and are well-published and amazing in that way, but also that they don't just leave it in a journal or leave it in a book, but take it out and fight for what they believe is right. And I think that that is so admirable, and I love that. Right, because in, like, looking at her work, it's helped me and helped me see that I'm able to do stuff, too. So it's really, I admire her so much because I would never have even thought of going into this, and she has so much work on it. Yeah, you know, it's part of that sort of idea of psychology that we ideally should be, quote, unquote, giving psychology away, right? That if it sits right. in a journal, it's, it, you know, who reads it? <laughs> Free people. Right, right. But if you do something in like a, you know, a bill of rights or suing a newspaper, whatever, it, you know, you do something to that knowledge to, to make people's lives better. Mm-hmm. Well, in science-backed advocacy as well, which I know is implied yeah. there, that you know that that both in both of these cases, and then this mm-hmm. is I, I, spoiler alert, I, it comes up for uh, Georgina as well. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. the science, <laughs> the science-backed advocacy of you know the, which is something I think we sorely need, right? As, as mm-hmm. scientists who are out speaking on behalf of of the data and and pushing positions that they that they don't just believe in, but have evidence to support. Mm-hmm. Right. Very good. 
All right. Georgina, are you up? I'm I'm ready to go. So I chose right. Elizabeth Loftus. And um I don't necessarily have a, a personal story. Um she has her work hasn't um personally impacted me, but I do just have a, a lot of admiration for her. Uh, she also is a distinguished professor at my alma mater at the University of California, Irvine. So I guess that's my one connection uh, to her. But one of the things that I so admire about Elizabeth Loftus is that she is an interdisciplinary psychologist and researcher, and I am as well. And so I, I love to see people show off how incredibly interdisciplinary psychology is as a field, that it's not just one thing. Uh, and so she is a professor of psychological science, of criminology, law and society, and also cognitive science. And so, wow, that just shows some of the incredible diversity that we have in the things that people study in psychology. And so I, I love that. Her research is all about human memory and eyewitness testimony and a lot of courtroom procedures and things like that. But uh, what she is most famous for is her experiments that um, have revealed how our memory can be changed um, by things that we're told, that um, facts and ideas and suggestions that happen after an event can actually impact how we remember them. And that to me, like, it just blows my mind, like some of her studies and the clever ways in which she implanted memories into people's minds and then studied the results of that and how it changed their memory. That just, to me, is, is incredible. So, um, she is probably most famous for her application in the courtroom as an expert witness. Um, she has been an expert witness for more than, I think, like 300 trials, including some really high-profile uh, sexual misconduct and murder cases like O.J. Simpson, Ted Bundy, uh, like who has recently become re-famous, I feel like, from that Netflix <laughs> show and um, so, <laughs> the Rodney King beating, she actually uh, was an expert witness for the officers accused. She also was an expert witness for the Bill Cosby um, trial, but most recently for Harvey Weinstein. And here's the thing, like when you, when Chris and Addie, you were talking about how um, both of the, the psychologists you were talking about were advocating for, I feel like, um, for the women. <laughs> I feel like, unlike that, Elizabeth Loftus is actually, she is most often an expert witness for the defense of, like, Harvey Weinstein. Um, and she's caught a lot of flack for oh, yeah. saying <laughs> that, <laughs> that um, people can be, um, can change their, the way that they remember things. And even though I wish it weren't so, uh, I have so much admiration that she is willing to fight for science 
even if it meets with a ton of criticism and that she's faced a lot of hostility in fighting for her science. And I give her a lot of credit for saying, you know what, I've done excellent research methodology. I have produced excellent scientific data. And although I don't like it myself, I think that it is high-quality data and that we need to pay attention to it and we need to make our system better so that we can collect information about people's memories before they are changed. <laughs> and uh, so I really admire that about her as well. So that's why I, I picked Elizabeth Watkins. So it's funny you mentioned the, the interdisciplinary piece because I actually – so I, I – you know, I, I don't know if you know this, but I studied criminal justice in college, hmm. and I actually – came across her work in a law class before I knew of her from any of my psychology classes that we read Witness for the Defense as one of the one of the books we read in a law class I was taking. And so it wasn't until grad school actually that I I learned about her in a cognitive psych class and realized like, oh, I, I know this person. I I I thought yeah. of her in a different context. I, I think one of the things that makes that makes her really complicated for me as you talked about her is because I agree, like she's an advocate for science and she's ultimately an advocate against eyewitness testimony. And that has meant that that has meant that she's had to, or I mean, not had to, that's not fair, that she's chosen to support some not so good people in the process of trying to, get away from eyewitness testimony. And in her defense, you know, tons of people are wrongly accused based and, and go to jail wrongly based on eyewitness testimony. And so, but, yeah. but unfortunately, you know, she's, she's had to defend some, some real scumbags in the process um, yeah. like Harvey Weinstein. Um, right. So, you know, it's she is. You're right. She's interesting in that her advocacy is different than the other cases. Her advocacy is sort of purely for the science. Although, yeah. no, I would argue similarly with Sandra Bem because she also got a lot of interestingly flack from some of the, some of the things positions she was taking. There wasn't research, and mm. so then she did the research. So I mean, in, 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 it's a similar. Yeah, it's a similar kind of thing. And she was also. I mean, she didn't get tenure at Stanford. So people didn't consider her research to be legitimate. Hmm. So, um, so in, in with Loftus, I mean, I, you know, I talk about her in my social psychology class about her work. And mm-hmm. so, um, I mean, she, her work has had a dramatic influence. Yeah. I remember seeing her speak a number of years ago at APA and it was, yeah. you know, it was a packed house and people were worried. But, you know, I don't know. Which, uh, I don't know what they were worried about that someone was going to stand up and who knows what. But it was <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. And I also, I just think it's so interesting because they probably go into it knowing they're going to get a lot of backlash, like focusing on topics like gender or race. Like, it's all controversial. <laughs> and, you right. know, they know going into it that it's, but they fight for it because they know it's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. And Elizabeth Loftus probably would not have gotten much crap if she was a man. Right. So. Right. right. Her, um, purely from a scholarly perspective, her research, and you mentioned this, G, but her research is so creative 
that if you really like want, I mean, the, the, the nuts and bolts of the studies that she puts together yeah. are, mm-hmm. is so interesting. And just yeah. even if you're not interested in the topic, even if you're not interested in the advocacy, just the, the creativity with which she approaches her research is really extraordinary. I I agree. And that's why I think um, for, for me, why she's such a great interdisciplinary psychologist uh, is that I think that that training in the cognitive sciences and the law and the psychology mm-hmm. together really created some interesting um, scenarios that she put together to test this. Like it gave her a broader perspective that that I think is true probably of social psychology as, as well. I feel like social psychology as a part of psychology is really interdisciplinary too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. Right. All right. Well, that is great. Now, I should, as we, the preface for mine is that I would argue that in many ways the person that I've chosen is not uh, a scientist. Um, she's oh, a, but she's had such an influence. She has. No, I think she's extraordinary. <laughs> I, I picked her for a reason, but I would just throw out that. I'm not sure I would call her a scientist. And um, uh, and that is uh, I have chosen Dr. Karen Horney, who, by the way, I've spent the day trying to figure out the best way to pronounce her name. I think um, that's it. I think it's one it? <laughs> Okay. I've come across quite a few, and I almost wrote uh, David Corey, the German professor on campus, to ask him how to do this. <laughs> um, so, um, anyway, uh, so I, uh, my backstory here, I have no personal connection to her. She died 23 years before I was born. Uh, however, um, she, uh, you know, I first actually encountered her when I started um, prepping for the first course I ever taught at UW-Green Bay when I taught theories of personality um, and kind of realized uh, who she was and what she stood for. And she's had a, as Chris mentioned, a profound influence on the field in a host of ways. Um, so some backstory here. She's uh, born in 1885 in Germany. Um, really uh, basically ignored her father's wishes, who she did not like. He was a sea captain, and uh, she didn't like him very much. She thought he was a religious hypocrite. Uh, She went to school to be a physician, even though he didn't want that for her. Uh, She specialized in psychiatry, and that's where she essentially encountered the work of Sigmund Freud. Um, She wrote her most famous book is a book uh, that was published in 1950, just two years before she died. It's called Neuroses and Human Growth. Um, And uh, basically, her career was um, uh, really, and I think she did work uh, for the, I think she's a founding member of the Berlin Psychiatry Center. It's probably not an accurate name. but she did have some experience. She was never like a student of Freud, but she could work with him in some ways. Um, but in 1932, she moved to the United States. She was recruited to come to Chicago. Um, and basically, she decided to for two reasons. One, because uh, she was scared, understandably, of Nazis. And two, because she was tired of Freud. Um, of course, <laughs> He, he came to the U.S. pretty soon after that, so that didn't really work uh, as far as escaping him. Um, but she's she's really well known for three things, um, three primary things. One is that she she talked a lot about, and this is I think a variation on a lot of Freud's work, but she talked a lot about this these concepts of basic hostility and basic anxiety, these ideas that um, 
you know, we have these needs we have to have met, safety and satisfaction, and if we don't have them met, then we develop this hostility toward our parents, um, or we develop this feeling of insecurity that she that that she called uh, anxiety. I think she she said something along the lines of uh, a feeling of being isolated and helpless in a world conceived as potentially hostile. Um, she said these concepts are are interwoven, and um, through this when we don't develop in a healthy, natural way, uh, we become, we develop these uh, neurotic needs and neurotic trends. And these are things like, um, and they all sound just painfully familiar, to be honest with you, um, need for a powerful partner, uh, the need for power, uh, need for personal admiration, need for perfection, things like that. And she lumps these into trends, which, interestingly enough, I think sound a lot like personality disorders. So one of the things I often think about is how influential she was of the, even though the modern DSM is supposed to be theory neutral, that you really see her work captured in particular personality disorders like antisocial personality disorder or dependent personality disorder or frankly even um, like uh, schizoid personality disorder, these um, you know, these trends of moving toward people in a compliant way, moving against people in an aggressive way, or, or moving away from people in this detached way. And so she was really, um, I think you see a lot of that influence in a lot of the, the modern ways we think about things. Um, but I suspect what is most interesting to this group right now is the influence she had on feminine psychology, um, where one of the reasons she didn't like Freud uh, is because, like a lot of people, and I, and I would agree with her on this, um, she, well, in her case, she said she didn't actually have a problem with Freud's observation, but she had a problem with his interpretation. She thought um, they were not generalizable. He was studying, quote-unquote, neurotic women and then generalizing it to all women. Um, and so she was particularly critical of penis envy. Um, and she's <laughs> not surprising. And she developed... Uh, she developed the uh, the an alternative to that, which I actually think just intuitively probably makes more sense. It's called womb envy, mm-hmm. and she argued that men envied women because uh, men cannot bear children and women can. Um, she said this was her essentially her response to penis envy. Uh, she argued that men have a very minor role uh, in creating <laughs> new life. Look at her. Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> They overcompensate for their womb envy by seeking achievement elsewhere. She argued that men resent women uh, and uh, that resentment manifested itself in disparaging and belittling them. Um, uh, So anyways, we see uh, concepts like womb envy. She also, she talked about, um, she had an alternative to the Oedipus complex. She said the the uh, disagreement between uh, or between kids and parents really was not of a sexual nature. It had to do with those safety and security needs not being met. Um, yeah. So, anyways, that is what I have to say. I'm guessing you all have things you might be able to add about Karen Horner. Well, I think <laughs> I like when Karen you were Horner. talking about the fact that she isn't a scientist, I. I think that there are um, lots of different ways in which people are scientists, and I think some people are like big thinkers, like the the people who come out with these theories and big thoughts or connect together things that they observe, 
um, maybe not on, you know, random samples of a thousand people. Right. <laughs> uh, but rather, and I think yes. that that is such a driving force of, of science are people who have amazing ideas so that then we can test, you know, using methodologies that we now call the scientific method, but right. I think we need those big ideas too. Oh, we we certainly do. I, I guess I, I guess it all depends on how you define science. I was thinking of it in right. terms of whether or not a person used the scientific method, and right. and I don't I think unless and I guess even that depends on whether or not you would consider the case study uh, part right. of the scientific method. But certainly she did that, and certainly she was a big thinker and a theorist uh, in, in all sorts of ways. Well, in Freud. Wasn't a scientist either, really. Nope, he was not. <laughs> yeah. And, and it, you know, she rightfully criticized him for a myriad of things that, you know, a small group of women who he saw, who were, by the way, friends of his, you know, daughters of his friends, which is one of the reasons why he denied that women were actually sexually sexually abused and said they were fantasizing it because he didn't have to then admit his friends were sexually abusing his daughters. Um, right. And so, and Hornei was, you know, and if, if it's Peterson, why like, couldn't it be women? Be? And so, right. you know, a number of people criticized Freud back then, and Freud's ego could not handle it. But right. I love Hornei. I I think there's something so beautiful and bold about just saying like, it's probably it might not be this way, and it could be the absolute opposite. Mm-hmm. You right. know, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah. No. And quite literally, I mean it when I say that just intuitively, it makes a lot more sense to have womb envy for the reasons she described than to have penis. Yes. Right? I, mean, I, just... I have to agree. <laughs> literally. Well, it's right. And it's I mean, if apparently penis gives you power, and that's, of course, what women were envying. Um, right. Right? <laughs> right. But, yeah, I think uh, Horney was, and, you know, she was one of the earliest, Theorists around in of the early stages of that sort of uh, area of the around you know psychoanalysis and psychoanalytic theory. Mm-hmm. So she was one of the first women doing that. Yeah, I mean, she was one. Of, I mean, when we just think just purely about kind of breaking down barriers, I mean, you, you know, she's one of the first women to study medicine at the University of Freiburg. Um, she's a founding member of this this group in Berlin. Um, I suspect the only woman, but if not, just one of a handful. Um, I mean, part of one of the things that was really interesting is just when I um, when I got to, when I started teaching theories of personality. I mean, there were essential because that book is a theory driven book from that mm-hmm. era. There were essentially no women listed other than her, right? I mean, this yeah. is a, at least the yeah. books at the time. It's been a long time since I taught that course, but. You know, that you are hard-pressed. I mean, she is um, an exceedingly influential thinker when it comes to personality theories. Um, and uh, amongst a group of which there are uh, essentially very few other women at the time. It's not that much better now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's been a while. I haven't talked about 10 years, but even <laughs> 10 yep. years, it wasn't, wasn't much well, better, so. And, you know, truthfully, when I was thinking about this with Loftus, so remember when we used to do the, um, uh, the I get March Madness um, yep, psychology research? Yep. Yep. Uh-huh. yep. Yeah. You know, I would run down a list. I would go out and just look for those lists of most famous psychology studies. And 
uh, Loftus was one of the few women listed in that group um, each year. I mean, when you look at – now, BIM uh, certainly should have been and, and was also there, but I think Loftus is one who just from a um, – was, was someone who ended up being kind of listed there frequently. I think that I read something when I was reading about her that there was an article published the 100 most eminent psychologists of the 20th century, and she is a top-ranked woman at 58, um, and that says something right there. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it says something about her, but also about how many women are represented there if 58 yeah. is the highest-ranked woman. <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't realize that. that. I, don't know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I remember at ACA several years ago they had the the hundred most prominent women in psychology. I'm imagining Loftus was there. Certainly Ben was there, and my graduate advisor was there as well. Nice. So, but Yay. interesting. So of them, what fifty fifty eight was the highest? That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. That is. I know. I I would not have guessed that. I would have I would have thought that Loftus was in the top. 10, but certainly the top 20, 58, that surprises me. I would have thought, yeah. that, you know, several women would have been in the top Yes, yeah. Right. Hmm. right. Well, any, um, I guess, any final thoughts on this before we transition into our last segment? Well, it's always, I mean, it's interesting because, uh, you know, when you think about the four presented, they're really very different in some, you know, in air, different in areas of psychology. Mm-hmm. So it's a, a nice mix, I think, um, of influential women in in different ways, but all, you know, uniquely great contributions to psychology as a discipline and, and our understanding of, of people in mm-hmm. their experiences. So who, you know, one of the things I always like to do when we have these is, like, to throw out some names of others that that listeners might want to look up on their own. Are there some other other people out there that you thought about choosing for this or that, that would have been a good fit for this? Um, Janet Hyde, Donna Madison. Yep. Is another one. Alice Eagley. Um, oh, what am I thinking? There's a, the classic article. Uh, I'm trying to think. Of course, my advisor, Irene Freeze. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> I would uh, give a shout out for Rachel Kaplan, who is a, a famous environmental psychologist. So in my my field, um, she's pretty awesome. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the women we talked about. In um, our psychology of women of color, Tema Bryant Davis is one yeah, of those. Karen Tao. Karen Tao, T A O. I'm trying to think. Of, um, oh, wow. uh, like my my mind is blanking right now. But those are certainly <laughs> some of the women, right. the women I'm thinking of. Um, yeah, I those like attention conferences. Oliva Espin, E S P I N. I'd, I'd mention uh, Ainsworth, I always think, did oh, interesting yeah, stuff. Yeah. Um, who else? Um, uh, maybe Phillips Clark, Phipps Clark, oh, maybe, sorry. Yeah. Um, another one, but yeah, I always uh, I, I always really, I thought another person who at least the, the some of Ainsworth's research is really interesting. But oh, yeah. Very good. Um, all right. Well, very good. Um, so 
so Georgina, as we uh, like, I can't remember who's supposed to go first in our uh, in our positive note. Who went? We need to start writing this down, obviously. But right. <laughs> who went first? Well, you have to that? say. Um, so we decided we've been doing our rapid research review um, throughout this uh, part of the the season since I became co-host, and it, it's been really fun. But we thought we would maybe end this um, this this year's or this academic year's podcast um, with a positive note. And so <laughs> um, I think, can I just go first? You don't care? Just go do for you, it. I do not. So, I think it would be great. Although this is not um, necessarily a journal article rapid research review, uh, I've been thinking a lot as, as we've been under a stay-at-home order, um, what are some of the coping mechanisms and things that help us thrive in challenging situations. And I've been thinking a lot about humor and how some of the best parts of my day are um, when I share a laugh with someone over Zoom or with my own family who's here sheltering at home with me, um, that anytime we can share a laugh, that that helps me cope. And so I've been reading a little bit about um, TikTok and the ways in which um, TikTok brings joy to people in lots of different ways. I mean, there are so many, like, for me, dog TikToks that are just amazing and hilarious. Just, like, five seconds of this dog, like, running around a corner, it, it just cracks me up and it brings me joy in an otherwise sometimes stressful time. I also love when families bond together. Like I've seen a lot of dance challenges where it's not only the teenage kids doing this dance challenge, but um, the parents get involved as well, which is sometimes pretty hilarious because uh-huh. maybe the parents aren't as good at dancers as the kids are. That's just my positive note is that when things are challenging, look for the look for the humor. Find something that makes you laugh, and I think that it's helpful um, to get you through challenging times. So that's my positive note. What about you, Ryan? <laughs> that is good, good stuff, and I agree completely. My, my wife and I got stuck on a on a TikTok. Just I don't know what you call it, a binge where we binge? we found. <laughs> We found something that was trending. I think it was just like it, it was. I can't remember what the hashtag was, but it was just the ones of people like trying to work while their spouse interrupts them. And <laughs> it was we couldn't stop. We just kept scrolling through, and you know, the, you know, each each clip is about ten seconds, so it, it doesn't seem like it's impossible to stop because you know the next one's only ten seconds long. And it was they were so funny. We were like laughing to the point we were crying. So. Yeah, uh, very, very good stuff. Um, so my, as you know, I like it a lot when uh, people write about psychology for the popular press. And so I came across an article in uh, HuffPost titled, The Psychology Behind Why We Lose Track of Time in Quarantine. And <laughs> But what was, not, what was nice about it is um, that they gave some, some tips on how to deal. So um, the reasons are pretty straightforward. It's like, you know, you're not separating work from non-work. 
uh, you know, your normal routine has gone out the window, your sleep stinks, um, you're, you're looking at screens all day, you're probably working more, all that stuff. All the stuff that we have, you know, talked about uh, during meetings and things like that. Um, but what they offered, uh, what this author uh, offered, Kelsey Borison is her name, uh, was basically five ways to deal. And she said, first, create a routine, write it down, and stick to it. Um, two is make work days different than days off, which I think a lot of us have trouble, but I actually did this this uh, weekend, which felt good. I really refused to check my email for the most part. Um yep. Set aside self-care. So, um, and I don't think they mean like literally set it aside. I think she <laughs> <laughs> I think what she means is set aside time for self-care. Don't so bathe. Don't yeah. bathe. <laughs> right. Don't worry about it. Yeah, you're yeah. not going to see anybody. Um, uh, this is uh, this is going to be Georgina's favorite. But get outside every day. Um, and then number five is uh, do some grounding exercises. So every now and then stop and take time to uh, to just ground yourself in the in the present moment. Um, so I, I picked this because I think last week was a rough week for me psychologically as I was kind of feeling stressed and feeling overwhelmed and all that stuff. And uh, I thought that um a couple of those things this weekend really specifically like making my weekend different from my work day um getting outside i spent a ton of time outside this weekend um but also i i um i started using the app i don't know if other people are getting served ads for this as much i think the the internet really knows that i have an anxiety disorder and so it's been just, it's been telling me to to embrace this app calm and um I love so that I found, app it's my fave is it? Is it just because it Matthew McConaughey will read you sleep stories? <laughs> all right, all right, all right. <laughs> all right, all right. <laughs> you know, when I try and read my wife's sleep stories as Matthew McConaughey, she just gets mad at me. So, I don't <laughs> so um, anyways, but it is, uh, I've been trying a lot of those things. So this article really hit home to me. So that's the positive note I'm going to add on. Thank you, Kelsey Borison, for, uh, for your great article on how to deal with the, uh, the, the time blur. Awesome. All right. Yeah. So, um, anything, any last things to pitch or to talk about before we, uh, before we put this to bed? No, I just want to know, no. Chris and Addie, are you guys watching TikTok too, or is it just Ryan and I? Of course. <laughs> Thank you. No, I do. You. Yeah. <laughs> no, I do it. I do it. You're fine. I'm with I you guys. It. No. I am, I am definitely watching comedy, though. I'm a very big Second yeah. City is doing all these online shows, nice. and it's been fantastic. Yeah. Yep. So mm-hmm. then every other day. <laughs> so it's what Mondays smart. So, so Tuesdays, Thursdays, and well, they Saturdays. So nice. um, yeah. So I, I definitely agree with the the comedy and getting outside. Mm-hmm. My dogs are very happy with the walks. So very good. Oh, definitely. <laughs> yeah. I don't. I don't want my kids to find out I'm on TikTok because. They both, they both really want to be on TikTok, so if they know that I'm there, then they'll, then I'll have a harder time coming up with an excuse for why they should be. But I, I posted a video that I made of our, our family performing, uh, what is the song from, uh, uh, from Tangled that I, on YouTube. And what I did 
my son came running over me. He's like, so are we YouTubers? It's like, oh, no. No, we are not. <laughs> anyway. But you should um, be. <laughs> yeah. Well, very good. Well, um, okay, let's see. A couple of just housekeeping things. Just remember uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. It is Psych and Stuff in all of those places. Um Go there. Tell us what you want, especially over the summer when we're not going to have new episodes, but we'll we'll still push put some stuff out there. So go there. Tell us what you want to hear and see from us. Um, like I said, it's Psych and Stuff. Uh, we're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Georgina, what's your Twitter handle? G-E-O-R-J-E-A-N-N-A-W-D. Georgina W-D. Very nice. And I am at Mart. That's R-Y-C-M-A-R-T. Uh, Chris, I don't think you're on Twitter. Are you on Twitter? I am not. I'm oh. I'm still on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> Good job. Facebook. Yeah, Twitter's a Twitter's a hostile, hostile place. So I don't blame you one bit for not being there. That's probably a choice. Yeah, yeah. Um, very good, Addie. I don't know if you have any social media stuff you want I'm to plug. I'm not on Twitter either. So yeah, okay. I'm not going to plug. It's fine. Yeah. Again, a fine <laughs> choice, but very, very good. Well, great. Well, I want to thank you all so very much for taking the time to do this. This was a really good – I wish we could have done it live as a group in March, but um, this is yep. a good way to end our season. So thank you very much for being yeah. here. Thanks for doing it. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Psychology and Stuff is a production of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. The executive producer is Ryan Martin, and the production manager is Kate Farley. Our audio production coordinator is Bill Salick, and our graphic designer is Kimberly Valise. Special thanks to our guests today, Addie Hunter and Dr. Chris Smith. If you haven't already, please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to us on all your favorite podcast platforms. It helps other people find the show. You can also head over to our website, uwgb.edu slash podcast, to check out past episodes of this and all our shows. I'm your host, Ryan Martin, and I'm here with Georgina Wilson-Dundas. Keep being amazing. 